Well, who'd have thought that as we sat down to our Christmas dinner just three months ago, that this new virus that had only just begun to affect a few people a few thousand miles away in an unfamiliar part of China would have spread to just about every country in the world. After all, even Greenland has got cases. Looking at a map of Africa, only Mali seems to be the one without any record of any case. But they are, of course, tied up fighting jihadists. If you could get there, Tristan da Cunha, a British dependency in the South Atlantic, the most remote inhabited island in the entire world with a population of 250. That would be the place to escape to. The only trouble is the nearest place to it is 1,500 miles away in South Africa and Tristan de Cunha has no airstrip. So if you're seasick, forget it. Well, the virus has so far infected at least a quarter of a million people and killed 10,000 of them. For some of us, this must seem unreal, for the enemy is unseen. For the vast majority of us, this is something we have never experienced. We may have seen and read about Ebola in Africa and other outbreaks of infectious diseases, We may have heard of Spanish flu, which in 1918 killed anywhere from 17 to 50 million. Some estimates put it at 100 million, making it one of the deadliest epidemics in human history. And a quarter of a million of those deaths were in the United Kingdom. If you are near my age... You may recall talking to your grandparents about life 100 or 120 years or more ago. One of my grannies was one of 14 siblings, but two of them had died in infancy from infectious diseases. My generation was the first to be pretty comprehensively inoculated against just about everything going on that you could catch. So for some of us, We hoped that we might just get it mildly. For others of us, we might be like the GP Claire Gerarda, who at 60 caught it in New York and described it as like the worst ever flu you can imagine. And that concurs with the one case in our own congregation, a much younger lad who has had it, who said much the same thing. Others of us, of course, are well up on developments. We see that it is very real indeed and of great concern. The recent statistics from Italy are alarming. There have been 42,000 cases as of today, Friday, and 3,500 deaths. Yesterday there were over 5,000 new cases And over 400 people died in Italy of it yesterday. Less than two weeks ago, we heard that the virus had reached Reading, then Andover, then Bracknell, and so we knew it was coming if it wasn't here already, like an encircling, invading army closing in. 
Of course, if you know you are in a vulnerable group because of age or health and you live alone, this is all a very real threat. Getting the symptoms, being told to self-isolate and then feeling that you are getting worse must be very scary indeed. As Christians, what do we need to recall at such times? Well, two things. The first, God's sovereignty. Quite providentially, we've recently been studying the life of Joseph in our evening services and at our two recent women's weekends away. So many of us are familiar with the story. But just to recap, Joseph's father, Jacob, had made him his favourite and Joseph was rather up himself as a 17-year-old. This, of course, made his brothers envious of him and whilst away from home tending the sheep, they plotted first to kill him, then changed their minds and threw him into an empty cistern to die until finally they seized the opportunity to sell him to passing slave traders on their way to Egypt. In Egypt, he became uh, a household slave to the captain of Pharaoh's guard, Potiphar. Now, Joseph did a good job, but he ended up in prison, unjustly accused. But there he helped prisoners from uh, Pharaoh's court who had fallen out of favour But on return to the court, the one who was fortunate to live, he was soon forgotten. Until, that is, there was a crisis, one that none of Pharaoh's advisers could solve. Pharaoh had a disturbing dream, and the ex-prisoner remembered that Joseph was the guy who had accurately interpreted his own dream. This was Joseph's big break. He told Pharaoh what the dream meant, that there would be seven years of bumper harvest followed by seven years of catastrophic drought. Famine would be the result. He advised Pharaoh what to do and landed himself with the job of Grand Vizier of Egypt, recruited to sort out the problem with the solution that he had outlined at what had turned out to be his job interview. Well, let's see how that fits into God's grand plan and purposes. Now, do you recall in Genesis 12 when God launched his public rescue plan to bring people back to himself? He was going to create a people who would become a nation. And through that nation, a saviour would come into the world to remove the barriers between God and us. Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob were successive patriarchs of this embryonic people of God. At this time, we're told that they numbered 70 in total, obviously at risk of total wipeout if seven years of famine hit them unprepared. But God had just got Joseph into a position where he could help ensure the survival of his people, the people of God, and ensure the survival of many Egyptians too. We see God's plan with the people of God. We see that they were able to carry on. Nothing was going to get in the way of God achieving his plans and purposes. And we know that with hindsight, nothing has. One of Jacob's descendants, through his son Judah, 
was Jesus the saviour of the world? Now Genesis 45, 4-7, at the point in the story where having gone to Egypt to buy food, the brothers discover who the, who the grand vizier really is. We read verse 4, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you and to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down, don't delay. You shall be given the region of Goshen and be near to me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and your herds, all of you. And on his father's deathbed, Joseph reassured his brothers again, 50-20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, you meant it for harm, the system, the slavery, the imprisonment, but God meant it for good, getting into a position where he enabled the saving of many lives and the people of God were able to be reunited and to survive. And in the story of Joseph, there are three distinct plots beautifully interwoven by the invisible hand of God. First is in the life of Joseph. Second is in his family, in the lives of his brothers and father. And thirdly, in the nation, that is the children of Israel. Through these events and experiences, God was doing three things simultaneously. He was humbling the pride of Joseph. He was bringing the brothers to repentance. And thirdly, he was keeping the people of Israel safe from extinction. All these things were happening at once. The hand of God was fitting it all together in a historical jigsaw. Today, God is in charge. Nothing happens outside of his will. His plans will go forward. If we are with him... We are secure. Even if we were to die, it would only be prematurely. For the Christian, there is a secure future. Now what else should a minister say this first Sunday of viral church when in response to the virus we are encouraged to self-isolate or practice social distancing? Well, I think to remind us that we are secure in Christ. God is sovereign and we are secure in Christ. Now I have never lived through anything like this. True, I was born at the very end of 1953 
just as rationing was coming to an end after the Second World War. I lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, totally unaware, in 1963, and the sea froze to half a mile out that winter. The troubles in Northern Ireland were mostly at a distance for those of us not living there. There was a long drought in 1976. In 1978, there were bucket loads of snow in Dorset, and for a fortnight, age 24, I was left in charge of a district general hospital with only enough oil to heat the hospital for a week and few staff able to come and join us at work. The announcement that we were at war with Argentina in 1982 was memorable. Since then, there have been two Gulf Wars and the conflicts in Afghanistan, but nothing like this has come my way before. An unseen enemy that could be so devastating for so many. For Christians in some parts of the world today, or at earlier periods of history, this of course was not uncommon. Our recent Lent talks reminded us of Jonathan Edwards, philosopher, Bible teacher, and one time president of Princeton, where in 1758 he died during a smallpox epidemic. The Scottish Presbyterian minister, Robert Murray McShane of Dundee, died just 29 years of age in 1843, ministering during the cholera outbreak in the city, which killed 5,000 people in six months. And then J.C. Ryle, the first bishop of Liverpool for the last 20 years of the 19th century. He often experienced outbreaks of cholera and other diseases in the, uh, in, in the insanitary uh, conditions of a 19th century city. Now, Ryle has a sermon called Christ in the Sick Room, based on King Hezekiah's experience in 701 BC, recorded in both the book of Isaiah, chapters 36 to 39, and in 2 Kings 18 to 20. After making some fundamental points, that sickness, disease, decay and death are all part of life for all of us, that we will all die, that no doctor can stop us from dying eventually, that death is all the result of human beings being in revolt against God. And as our relationship with him was fractured, so too our relationship with his creation, of which we were appointed his stewards to manage. Things have gone wrong. However, he very profitably pointed out that sickness is not an unmixed evil. He says that King Hezekiah received spiritual benefit from his illness. I think there can be no doubt of that, Ryle says. The good man saw things in his sickness which he had never seen clearly and fully in the days of his health, he points out. The bishop does not say, however, that sickness always does good. He knew that it frequently did no good at all. Too often, he says, we see men and women after recovering from a long and dangerous illness, more hardened and impious than they were before. Too often they return to the world, if not to overt sin, with more eagerness and zest than ever. 
the impressions made on their conscience in the hour of sickness are swept away like children's writing on the sand of the seashore when the tide flows in. Contemporary writers like Kathy Keller, in the book co-authored with her husband Tim, Walking with God in Pain and Suffering, urges her readers, don't waste your sorrows. She shares about her long struggle with Crohn's disease, including 25 operations, and draws on that experience. She says, you can waste your sorrows and afflictions by being consumed with anger. Anger at God, anger at whatever forces you believe to lie behind your suffering. And then she says, consider, consider what John Newton said in one of his letters. If you think you are getting no help by being close to God, be sure you will get no help from being far away from him. Well, back to Ryle. He does say that sickness ought to benefit us. He says, and I do say that God sends it in order to do us good. Affliction is a friendly letter from heaven. It is a knock at the door of conscience. It is the voice of the Saviour knocking at the heart's door. Happy is he who opens the letter and reads it, or who hears the knock and opens the door, or who welcomes Christ to the sick room. He then goes on to show a few lessons which God, through sickness, would teach us. I think it would be a help to share these and maybe expand on one or two of them. First, sickness, he says, is meant to make us think. He says to remind us that we have a soul as well as a body, an immortal soul, a soul that will live forever in happiness or in misery, and that if this soul is not saved, we had better never to have been born. Now, in the 1850s, London was the most powerful and wealthiest city in the entire world with a population of more than two million. A cholera outbreak in 1854 struck fear into the hearts of Londoners. Charles Spurgeon was only 20 at the time and a contemporary of Ryle's and he came to the capital to become the pastor of New Park Baptist Chapel. He looked back to this plague as a key time of learning, both for himself and for the city. He says, if there ever be a time when the mind is sensitive, it is when death is abroad. I recollect when first I came to London how anxiously people listened to the gospel, for the cholera was raging terribly. There was little scoffing then. He tells the story of visiting a dying man who'd previously opposed him. That man, he says, in his lifetime had been wont to jeer at me. In strong language, he had often denounced me as a hypocrite. Yet he was no sooner spitten by the darts of death than he sought my presence and counsel, no doubt feeling in his heart that I was a servant of God, though he did not care to own it with his lips." Secondly, Ryle says that sickness is meant to teach us that there is a world beyond the grave. And he says that the world we now live in is only a training place for another dwelling where there will be no decay, 
no sorrow, no tears, no misery, and no sin. Thirdly, he says, sickness is meant to make us look at our past lives honestly, fairly, and conscientiously, and to ask, am I ready for my great change if I should not get better? Do I truly repent of my sins? Are my sins forgiven and washed away in Christ's blood? Am I prepared to meet God? Fourthly, sickness, he says, is meant to make us see the emptiness of the world and its utter inability to satisfy the highest and deepest needs of the soul. He writes, well, no, one of our members this week had a phone call from a relative. Like her, she'd had the experience of a Christian youth group, but had long ago followed the ways of the world. She'd rung up a bit the worse for wine and in tears asking whether this was Armageddon. A rather extreme conclusion, but no doubt God was using current events to break through to her in her realisation of emptiness. Fifthly, sickness, he comments, is meant to send us to our Bible, something he calls that blessed book, which, is, which in the days of health is too often left on the shelf and is never open from January to December. But sickness often brings it down from the shelf and throws new light on its pages. And then sixthly, sickness is meant to make us pray. Too many in Ryle's pastoral experience, he feared, never pray at all, or they only prattle, he says, over a few hurried words morning and evening without thinking what they're doing. But prayer, he says, often becomes a reality when the valley of the shadow of death is in sight. Seventhly, sickness is meant to make us repent and break off our sins. He says, if we will not hear the voice of mercies, then God sometimes makes us hear the rod. Eighthly, sickness is meant to draw us to Christ. He writes that naturally we don't see the full value of the blessed Saviour. We secretly imagine that our prayers, good deeds and sacrament receiving will save our souls. But when flesh begins to fail, then the absolute necessity of a redeemer, a mediator and an advocate with the Father stands out before men's eyes like fire and makes them understand the words, simply to your cross I cling, as they never did before. Sickness has done this for many. They have found Christ, he says, in the sick room. And last, but not least, sickness is meant to make us feel and express sympathy towards others. Ryle says, by nature, we are all far below our blessed master's example, who not only, who not only, uh, who had not only a hand to help all, 
but a heart to feel for all. None, he observes, are so unable to sympathise as those who have never had trouble themselves. And none are so able to sympathise as those who have drunk most deeply the cup of pain and sorrow. And he concludes, Brethren, when your time comes to be ill, I beseech you not to forget what the illness means. Beware of fretting and murmuring and complaining and giving way to an impatient spirit. Regard your sickness as a blessing in disguise, a good and not an evil, a friend and not an enemy. No doubt, he says, we'd all prefer to learn spiritual lessons in the school of ease and not under the rod. But rest assured that God knows better than we do how to teach us. The light of the last day will show you, he says, that there was a meaning and a needs be in all your bodily ailments. The lessons that we learn on the sickbed when we are shut out from the world are often lessons which we would never learn elsewhere. So he encourages us to settle it down in our minds that however much we may dislike it, sickness is not an unmixed evil. So in summary... One, rest secure that God is in control of all things. And secondly, if you come under pressure, remember the observation of C.S. Lewis, who wrote, Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond and the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. Let's pray. Almighty God, the protector of all who believe in you and without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy, increase and multiply upon us your mercy that with you as our ruler and guide we may pass through the things of this age in such a way that we do not finally lose the things of the age to come. Grant this, Heavenly Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.